Good morning. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And your Holy Spirit uses your word to shape us into the likeness of your Son. We're so grateful, Father, for your word that we have it for ourselves, that we can listen to it and apply it in our lives. Help us to do that. I pray that this particular passage would would sink deep into our hearts and would cause us to love you more, to treasure Jesus above other lesser things, and that we would pursue you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is sort of a a PG-13 passage in a G-rated church service. Uh, I need to speak on this passage a little differently than I would if I were at a men's retreat. There is a word in particular that Jesus uses here that would be readily recognized at a men's retreat that might not be familiar to some of us, especially some of the smaller ones among us, and they are with us to learn with us, and so we want to make sure that we are uh, speaking to them as well. The word that Jesus uses that I'm mentioning here, that I'm referring to here, is adultery. What it basically means is stealing someone else's husband or wife. Other things could be said about it, but I think that addresses it. I think that gets at the heart of what Jesus is speaking about here. Adultery is stealing someone else's husband or wife. It was happening in the culture in which Jesus was speaking these very words. King Herod had stolen his brother Philip's wife and was living with her as his own. John the Baptist called him out for it, and it got John the Baptist thrown into prison and ultimately executed. But not only was it happening in that culture, it happens in our culture as well. You may uh, see a a movie and and learn that the, the star of that movie is married to another movie star, and and you go, oh, that's interesting, husband and wife, movie stars, and then a couple years later, you find they're both married to somebody else. What's going on there? There's been some stealing that's gone on there. Someone has stolen somebody else's wife, and Jesus calls that adultery. And it's not just in Hollywood, either, that that happens. A man might get to know a woman at work, And he might come to the conclusion that he would enjoy living with her more than he does his own wife. And so he tries to impress her and to steal her away from her husband. And that is very wrong. It's very wrong. It is not how God designed marriage to work. So Jesus talks about it. Jesus doesn't duck any tough subjects, and so as we go through God's word sequentially, we don't either. And as Jesus talks about it in this passage, he lays out some principles that apply not only to how we might relate to somebody else's husband or wife, but principles that apply to all sorts of situations that we might find ourselves in when we're tempted to sin. 
by stealing, by lying, by cheating, by gossiping, by doing all sorts of things that we are tempted to do. Jesus shows us then in this passage some principles that can help keep us from sin. So, I found three, and I'll share them with you. They're printed in your program, and the first is don't toy with sin. Verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't toy with sin. We tend to press the limits of what's in bounds. That's what was going on here. The law said, you shall not commit adultery. And so you could define that in such a way that there was a line that you could come right up to and yet not cross and say, I am technically innocent of this. When I was a boy, I used to like playing outside with my friends, and we always wanted to do it as long as we possibly could. And uh, my parents, though, had a rule, and that rule was be home by dark. So what's dark? If I can still see a baseball to hit it, is it dark yet? And so I came home after dark a lot of times because I pressed the limit of what the rule was. And so we tend to come right up to the edge of what's allowed, and then we push it a little further. It's a natural human tendency. We can even make things look like we're not doing anything wrong, right? Like when we're asked to explain something we did. Why'd you do that? Tell me more about what you just did. And so we explain it and we leave a couple of details out. And that's called lying. Hmm? I've got a little competition this morning. We see a piece of candy on, on a, a shelf or a countertop, and, and we want it. And so as we walk by, we just kind of accidentally bump it with our elbow, and it falls to the floor, and we just we pick it up and stick it in our pocket, and that's called stealing. Hmm? We may even share a prayer request with somebody and say more than we should about someone else. And even in that sanctified setting, what we're doing is wrong. It's called gossip. Don't toy with sin. Don't come up to the edge of it and see how close to the edge you can get. Stay away from the edge. It's dangerous to come near the edge. Every year at the Grand Canyon, somebody falls to his or her death because they just had to get right up to the edge. Happens every year there. And if we're smart, we'll stay away from the edge. This week I ran across a newspaper clipping that I filed away more than 30 years ago. It's a picture of a man sitting in a room full of cobras holding one of them. 
And you can see that the room is kind of screened in. There's some people on the outside looking at that, just fascinated to see this man in a room full of cobras. And here's what the caption said in that newspaper article. Dastagir Hussein, known as the Snake King in Malaysia, holds one of 100 cobras in a specially constructed room at the National Museum in Kuala Lumpur. He will eat, sleep, and play together with the poisonous creatures for 14 days to challenge Guinness World Records. He already held the record at nine days, but he thought maybe he could stretch it to 14 so that nobody else would think about breaking his record. And as I, I, I looked at that again, I thought, you know, I wonder if he made it. And so I googled his name, and you know what I found? Nothing. Draw your own conclusions. <laughs> and then I got to wondering, well, what is the current world record in the Guinness Book of World Records for living with poisonous snakes? And so I did a little digging. And I found this in the UPI archives. It says this, the Guinness Book of World Records lists no endurance record for living with snakes. That's probably a really good idea. So that no one will be tempted to do that and say, well, I'm just trying to break a world record. Fact is, it's dangerous to live in the same room with venomous snakes. I think we'd all agree. But if I were to tell you that you really shouldn't play with cobras, you might say I'm just trying to spoil your fun. But cobras are deadly, and if I were to tell you you shouldn't play with them, it would be because I'm trying to protect you. Don't toy with cobras, and don't toy with sin, because it is deadly too. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 tells us that God's commandments are not burdensome. He didn't give them to us to take away our fun. They're not burdensome. They're there for our good. They're there to protect us. And yet we sometimes feel like they get in our way and keep us from doing the things we want to do. And so we step right up to the edge of what's allowed, and then we push it. Just like I did when I was a boy wanting to stay out later than what my parents wanted me to. And the Pharisees cited the law appropriately that said, do not commit adultery. But in practice, what that meant was, it's okay to do everything short of that. As long as you don't step over the edge. And Jesus attacks the mindset that says, I can toy with sin. I'm okay as long as I don't step over the edge. I can entertain wrong, lustful thoughts as long as I don't fall into stealing someone else's wife, which is adultery, Jesus says that won't do. It's the same mindset that says, I can stretch the truth and still not lie. Or I can have two drinks and still drive. Or I can run up my credit cards as long as I can pay the minimum balance each month. We all tend to push the limits of what's allowed when staying far from the limits would be the wise thing to do. Don't toy with sin. Don't wait till you've gone too far. 
before you realize that you've been pressing the limits. That's principle number one. Don't toy with sin. Principle number two is eliminate what leads to sin. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That's some drastic talk, isn't it? I mean, if you were hearing that for the first side, first time, would your eyes just, just open wide? You know, I, I can picture some of our little ones going, did Jesus really say that? Cut off your hand, gouge out your eye? He stated it that way to get people's attention. It's a literary device called hyperbole, which is intentionally overstating something to make a point. And so he makes a point here. Think about what it is he's making a point on through his hyperbole. And by the way, how do I know it's hyperbole? It's because all of the disciples still had two eyes and two hands, right? Jesus wasn't in the business of of amputations and surgeries. No, this this was a a point he was trying to make. and, And the point is this. Is there anything more precious to you than your eyesight? Very little, Very little. I mean, we depend on that. Uh, Think about if you suddenly lost it, uh, how drastically your life would change. Most of us are right eye dominant as well. So to lose your right eye would be a serious thing. Or think about your right hand. You use it all the time. Most of us are right hand dominant as well. So your right eye and your right hand are probably among the most precious things that you have. And Jesus is saying... If they lead you to sin, they're not worth having, as precious as they may be. Let me ask you this. What begins this slippery slope that leads ultimately to adultery? What begins it? Generally, the eye, right? It begins with a glance. It begins with a look. And where is the line crossed on that slippery slope when you have gone so far that the chances of coming back are minimized? Uh, That uh, you have come to a point of no return. Where on that slippery slope does that happen? I'd suggest it generally happens with a touch. Begins with a look And you cross that line of no return with a touch. The other person might not know you're looking. They'll certainly know when you're touching. The eyes, the hands, precious and needed for the things that we do. And Jesus says if they lead us to sin, then they are leading us away from God and could land us in hell. Because of that, they are not worth having. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus talks about the the eye and the hand. He also throws in the foot. You need that too, right? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame 
than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let me paraphrase that passage. Take drastic measures to keep yourself from heading down the pathway to sin. If the thing that is dearest to you leads you to sin, get rid of it. Let's break for application just for a minute here. What is it that leads you and me to sin? Think about your own life. What is it that leads you to sin? Is there something in your life that leads you to sin that you need to think seriously about getting rid of? Maybe it's your TV set. Does that lead you to sin? Does that lead you away from God? If it does, consider its worth. Maybe it's the cable line that runs into your TV set that allows you hundreds of channels to choose from. Does that lead you to sin? Maybe it's your internet at home that would lead you to sin. Maybe it's your smartphone. You say, well, I I can't possibly get rid of those things. I depend on those things, right? How much do we love them versus how much we love God? If they lead us away from God, we love them too much. There are influences in our lives that will lead us to sin if we allow them. We need to eliminate those influences from our lives. Job chapter 31 verse 1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Another translation says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a virgin. I've just ruled that out. I'm just not going to look. There's a great tool called Covenant Eyes, named after this verse, that keeps track of where we go on the internet and gives a report to an accountability partner of our choosing. It's a helpful tool that can help us eliminate some of the things that lead us to sin. We need to take practical steps to avoid falling into sin. There's a short story called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It goes like this. Chapter 1, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I am hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in this same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. 
I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. Walk down another street. Principle 1, don't toy with sin. Principle 2, eliminate what leads to sin. And principle number 3, deal with your heart. Look at verse 28 again. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I said a couple weeks ago that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We can keep from toying with sin. We can eliminate things that lead us to sin. But ultimately, the problem is a heart problem. It's not just the act, it's the heart. The act can be so narrowly defined that we can avoid being technically guilty of a particular sin. Think about what Bill Clinton said about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky when he testified before the Senate committee and insisted that he was technically telling them the truth. Technically. But you see, it's not a matter of how close you can come to the line without stepping over it so that you can say you have technically not violated that thing. It's also not a matter of building bigger fences further out. It's, again, a matter of the heart, and that's straight where Jesus takes us. What really leads a person to sin? Is it his eye or his hand? What motivates the eye and the hand? Matthew 5.19 says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The heart of the problem is ultimately the problem of the heart. You think there might be a hint of sarcasm in Jesus' voice here in Matthew chapter 5 as he speaks about the Pharisees' interpretation of the law? Could he be saying something like this? If, if it were your eye that caused you to sin, why, you could just gouge it out. You wouldn't be sinning anymore. If it were your hand, you could cut it off and be done with sin. But don't you see it's deeper than that? It's your heart that's leading you to sin, and you need to change it. Sins are symptoms of a disease called sin. Let me say that again. Sins, plural, are symptoms of a disease called sin, singular. Dealing with the symptoms alone won't fix the problem because it's the disease that kills, not the symptoms. You can cover up symptoms all you want and still die of a disease. We humans suffer from a disease of the heart called sin. It's not just a matter of what we do, but a matter of who we are. Change what we are, And what we do will follow. 
That's the wonder of rebirth. That's the wonder of regeneration. God recreates our heart. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Psalm 51, verses 6 and 7 and 10 say this. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God's the only one that can give us a new heart. What's your biggest temptation to sin? What's the one you grapple with again and again and again? What will it take to get rid of that temptation in your life? Recognize how dangerous it is and back away from the edge? It's a good thing. Get rid of the things that entice you to sin? Credit cards, junk food, alcohol, cable TV, smartphone. Good ideas. Get accountability? It's a good thing. Being willing to do whatever it takes to maintain purity. These are all good ideas, but ultimately, it's going to be a heart issue. Does your heart belong to Jesus? Has he taken up residence there? Has he implanted his Holy Spirit in your heart to cause you to desire the things that he desires for you? He can change not just your behavior, but your desires as well. Make him your greatest treasure, and temptations will shrink in proportion. You may say, you know, I've done that, and I still struggle. Let me just say a couple things in response to that. First, congratulations for your honesty. I think we all do. James says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. But that's why God has placed us in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ. We weren't meant to walk this road alone. We've been given fellowship in Christ, the companionship of other believers to travel this road with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together about his experience leading an underground seminary in World War II Germany. He speaks there about the value of Christian community. And he says this in a chapter on confession. Sin demands to have a man alone. Alone, it has power over you. But brought into the fellowship It loses its power when we confess our sin to a brother or a sister in Christ. It loses its power over us because we're no longer alone with us. We're no longer in the dark with it. It's been brought into the light of the fellowship, and we gain victory over it. And a brother or a sister can encourage us not just to overcome sin, but to love God more. The second thing I would say is that we need to make our focus not what we want to eliminate from our lives, but on what we want to treasure 
Make that your focus. Cry out daily for a heart to love God more deeply. Feed your love for the Savior and you will starve out the things that would take you away from him. Don't toy with sin. Eliminate the things that lead you to sin. Deal with your heart. I got an email yesterday from Desiring God. It's a weekly email they send out. There was a great article, the first article in it, question for Pastor John Piper about the relationship between our justification and our personal holiness. We have been justified by faith because of the grace of God, then As we pursue holiness, are we trying on our own efforts to do something and ultimately undermining the justification by faith that we have received? And his answer essentially is this, we are justified by faith. We are also sanctified by faith. Those two are not at odds with one another. What God has begun in us Through justification, he wants to continue in us until the day of Christ. When we speak of salvation, I I, I see three aspects that we need to to focus on. Uh, The first is is our justification. Uh, This is uh, our instantaneously moving to 100% righteousness by the decree of God. We are 100% righteous in his eyes, and we are set free from the penalty of sin. And it is justification that allows the Apostle Paul to say, I have been saved. The second aspect is our sanctification. As we are gradually set free from the power of sin in our lives. And it's that that allows the Apostle Paul to say, I am being saved. And we look forward to the third aspect, which is glorification, when we are finally set free from the presence of sin. And it allows Paul to say, I will be saved. Those things are not at odds with one another. This is a part of the beauty of God's design in salvation. We are transformed then from the inside out increasingly treasuring Christ above all else and becoming more and more like him. May that be so of us. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll be able to make use of those in the coming week. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the wonder of your salvation that meets people right where we are and forgives us of our sin when we trust in you, robes us in the very righteousness of Jesus, and then continues to work in us to transform us from the inside out until the day of Christ when we stand before you complete, whole, spotless, and pure. Help us, Father, to trust in you by faith as we walk that road of sanctification, to take advantage of the things that you put in our lives that help us gain victory over sin and transform us into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray.
Amen.